Welcome to Talking China in Eurasia, a new podcast from Radio Free Europe, where we look at how Beijing's rising influence is changing the supercontinent from the Kazakh steppes to the banks of the Danube. I'm Radio Free Europe correspondent Reid Standish, and joining me today from Singapore is Raffaello Pantucci, a senior associate fellow at RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute, and the author of Sinistan, China's Inadvertent Empire. Raffaello, thanks a lot for joining me today. Let's get into it. Thanks for the invitation, Reid. Very much looking forward to it. All right. So the world's leading economies just wrapped up the G20 in Bali, where we saw growing condemnation of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the global fallout that it's bringing. The summit was also another test for Chinese leader Xi Jinping's support for Russian President Vladimir Putin, which continues to come under scrutiny as the war grinds on. Beijing maintains that it's neutral, but it has lent diplomatic coverage to the Kremlin throughout the war. As many listeners might recall, she and Putin declared what they termed a no-limits partnership between their two countries earlier this year, and questions have also swirled around whether she knew of Putin's invasion plans in advance. Of late, we've also seen some signals of discomfort towards Russia's war from Beijing, with both Biden and Xi warning against the use of nuclear weapons in an apparent reference to Putin's ongoing saber-rattling. She also made similar comments after a November 4th summit with German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, and according to a French readout during the G20 meeting with French President Emmanuel Macron. Before wrapping things up in Bali, Macron also said in his remarks that he expects China to play a bigger role in mediation and preventing a resumption of Russian attacks in Ukraine after the winter. So, Raphael, that's obviously lots to unpack right there, but what are your thoughts on what we saw at the G20, and what does this recent... Uh, you know, spurt of Chinese diplomacy. Tell us about where Beijing's relationship with Russia stands today and, uh, and where it could be headed. Well, I think it's, uh, it's interesting, but I, I think it's probably a lot more about China's relationship with the United States than it is really about China's relationship with Russia. Um, all the signaling we've seen, all the noise we've heard about, you know, Putin not uh, Putin not informing Xi before, and this causing some friction. These sort of repeated statements we're seeing from uh, China about, you know, concern around nuclear weapons. You know, I think these are genuine concerns, and I think there is a genuine level of irritation probably in Beijing. But I think the fact that they're pushing all these signals out is really more about the fact that it's very clear that what they also want is, you know, the clear signaling with the G20 summit and the meeting between President Xi and President Biden was a desire to try to put some sort of a positive face on things and try to get things onto some sort of a more stable footing than they kind of had been before. Um, and so within that light, this is really about China showing to the West, uh, you know, and the United States in particular, that, you know, well, they recognize that, you know, the Russian there is an issue with what Russia's done. Um, and there are, you know, they are genuinely concerned about nuclear war. They don't want a nuclear war. Um, but, you know, I would say that actually, in, in many ways, none of this is all that new. I mean, the point I've always thought about uh, China's views on what, uh, you know, Russia did with the invasion of Ukraine was, you know, it's never openly celebrated it and said, you know, this is a great thing to do. We, you know, hooray, we're glad you've invaded another country. You know, sovereign borders being broken. Um, you know, all they've basically done is basically support the, China, the Russian narrative, which was, you know, this idea of, you know, it basically being NATO's fault and NATO expansion being the root of Russian insecurities and this sort of justifying, uh, you know, what Russia was doing. And, you know, within that light, it was really about China supporting Russia against 
its principal adversary, which is the United States. So in a way, what we're seeing is that there's a desire from Beijing to try to signal that the relationship with the US in particular is kind of shifting again. And that's the signaling they're sending out. But I think underpinning all of that is a reality that, you know, at the end of the day, um, the Russian relationship is still important to uh, Beijing. You know, and I'd say, well, we've seen all this signaling now uh, and concerns around nuclear weapons and, and so on and so forth, which, you know, I'm sure is as much as signaled, by the way, to the West as it is to the rest of the world, because I don't think anyone really thinks the use of nuclear weapons is something that we should be encouraging or is a good thing, um, you know, except for some fanatics in Russia from what we see in the press. Um, you know, it, it's basically that, you know, they're, they're sort of telling everyone, yes, we are a rational act and we recognize this is a bad thing. Um, but I also think, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, the Ru- Chinese are still, you know, concerned about the relationship with Washington. And the, there is still an element where Moscow is important within that. So I think there's a bottom to this. Um, and I think there's a limit to this. But at the same time, it's very clear that China is em- demonstrating, at least, you know, that there are some things that they don't want to see go as far as they can. So in a way, what we've seen now is more probably signaling from Beijing towards the United States than really towards Moscow. Okay, interesting. So, I mean, maybe let's, you know, rewind a little bit here. Um, you know, how did we get to this point where we are today, you know, where we have this dynamic between Beijing and Moscow, which, I mean, is certainly the closest they've been in recent memory. And I think especially if we want to, you know, go even further back to, you know, relationships between between China and the Soviet Union, where there's even, you know, uh, war going on and lots of tensions there. So, you know, we obviously have this February announcement about this no limit partnership that I think most people are familiar with, but that didn't happen overnight. So, I mean, how did Putin and Xi become as close as they are now? And I'm curious to get your thoughts on what kind of relationship, you know, do these two countries really have? I mean, this isn't quite an alliance, but also I'm really curious about, you know, how much those two men at the top are really driving this. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a tend to be a bit skeptical about this kind of bromance narrative that we often hear about in the press like you know they're great pals you know and they sort of buddy up together and i don't know drink vodka or or baijo and you know celebrate you know the wonderful things they're achieving in the world together i mean at the end of the day these are two men who don't share a common language um so you know they're operating through translators in big rooms with lots of other people watching scribbling notes you know that doesn't feel to me like an environment in which you're really going to develop a you know deep deep buddy buddy relationship um so i think the personal you know dynamic is you know probably more about them seeing each other as you know strong leaders uh, leading large countries and important countries on the world stage and sort of you know strong men who can see another strong man sitting across the table i think that image has probably taken a bit of a beating uh, for in president xi's eyes with the sort of failure of the russian invasion and all the issues you've seen around it but you know so i think that that element of it is probably a bit damaged but you know to sort of go back where does this russian relationship chinese relationship come from i mean you know if you go back all the way to the you know creation of the Russian Federation in the end of the Cold War, you know, it's interesting because, you know, at the time, I would argue Russia was probably fairly dismissive of China, actually. And if you look at how China and Russia interacted within the Shanghai Five, which then developed into the Shanghai Corporation Organization, you know, that was really... Uh, a dynamic in the early days where the Chinese were desperately trying to coax the Russians to participate uh, because the Russians kind of didn't really see the point and they thought this is a thing often whatever didn't really matter to them. Um, so, you know, they were sort of dismissive. And then what I think you've seen happen over the years is gradually the relationship balance has shifted. Um, but at the same time, other things have happened in the world. And I think the principal other thing that's happened in the world is the fact that both of them increasingly see a world in which there is a kind of what they would probably 
perceive as a kind of messianic democratizing West pushing ideas of, you know, free democracies, you know, one man, one vote, you know, open societies, you know, essentially things that would lead to the toppling of their, you know, one man, strong man, authoritarian governments. Um, and that fear has increasingly bound them together. And, you know, you could track this back, um, I would argue, probably to the color revolutions, which started in, you know, 2003, 2004, when we had the Rose Revolution right, in right. Georgia, then the Orange Revolution in Ukraine, then the Tulip Revolution, which wasn't really a color revolution, you know, but kind of got caught up in that mix. Uh, in Kyrgyzstan, you had the events in Andijan in 2005, you know, and then you had the Arab Spring that sort of followed that, you know, and that whole wave of kind of democratization sweeping through the space was of great concern to the two of them. And I think it started to crystallize in their minds that there is a clash in the world between us and the sort of West. And, and, then, and then if I could yeah. jump in there, Raphael. Sure. I mean, how did that really accelerate? I mean, 2014 always seems as this this turning point to me. You know, I can remember it's, you know, a few months after the annexation of Crimea. Um, Putin makes this trip where he goes to Beijing. He drums up. You know, I, I remember in a previous job, I was hearing this, you know, seeing these talking points, you know, Russia's pivot to the east, Russia's pivot to China. Um, all of these talking points that are coming out of the Kremlin like this. But we see this visit allegedly to sign this massive, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars worth in a gas deal and an energy deal. Um, but I mean, where, how did that take us to get here? I mean, is, is this mostly a relationship that is about energy and kind of a shared antagonism towards the West, mostly speaking, the United States? Or, or is there more ties that can really bind Russia and China together? I mean, is this an alliance at all? Um, I mean, I think it's it's probably an alliance in in a way, right? <laughs> I mean, I think as we've really seen in Ukraine quite clearly, is you know, it's it's abundantly clear that you know Russia can get involved in a war, and the Chinese kind of will hesitate about supporting them. And you know, theoretically, in an alliance, you would you know go to the mattresses, you know, with your allies when they go to war. So there's clearly a kind of bottom to it and a limit. So it's clearly not an alliance in the same way that we might look at the relationships between NATO countries, for example, or, you know, uh, or Western countries in the European Union or the United, sort of all, you know, the Five Eyes relationships. You know, I don't think it's clearly in that light, but I think it's still a very important relationship. I think what's also happened over the years is that the kind of the 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 human connections um, and the economic links have grown. And they've grown where initially I think it was a story of stuff coming from Russia uh, to China to basically completely completely flipping over into the other direction, where there is still an important element of, you know, um, energy in particular uh, coming into, um, to, uh, into, uh, into China. But, you know, beyond that, it's, uh, it's much, you know, it's, it's much more, there's a heavier economic trade going the other way into uh, Russia. And so I think the balance has really shifted. But I think it's, there's, there's a lot of ties that are kind of bring them closer together. And I think a lot of dependencies that I suspect are building up on the Russian side in particular, um, when we think about, you know, some of the high tech things and the, the sort of future world that Russia is probably building itself towards, which previously it would have tried to tie in lots of directions, but increasingly it finds itself only able to tie in the Chinese direction. That I think is, is really changing. But even there, there are hesitations on the Chinese side. And I think there's probably a limit to how much they want to be dependent in both directions. Okay, well, let, let's come back to the war then. I mean, mm. you know, you, you, you've alluded to this before. You said, you know, okay, China, it's been walking its own line. And we have seen it take, you know, I think what is a fairly interesting policy line since the February 24th invasion. We have Chinese state media very much, and, and officials, I should say, echoing Russian talking points, in a lot of cases, even misinformation about the war. We've seen Beijing back some very Russia-friendly votes to the UN. 
Um, and also, I guess, help out its economy in some ways that it can by buying up, you know, cheap oil that's on the market. But we've also seen Beijing, you know, carefully avoid getting dinged with secondary sanctions, exposing itself kind of economically for Russia's sake. We've also seen it distance itself in other cases. And also, you know, we've, we've seen at various points, you know, Chinese officials speak anonymously to Western press and talk about how, you know, they didn't know about Putin's war plans in advance. So, I mean, what does that tell us about where we are now, I guess, in this war? Because obviously this has been an evolution. So I'm, I'm really curious, you know, as we're entering this, this kind of interesting winter period um, in Ukraine, I mean, where, how, how do you think Beijing is really feeling about its partner, Russia, right now? I mean, you know, the sort of briefings we, we see of, you know, people saying, you know, mysterious voices from China or even actually mysterious voices from Russia, you know, saying things that seem to show that there's a sort of tension underpinning the relationship. I mean, this is something I've heard for, uh, you know, a long time going back. I've been to been fortunate enough to do various engagements over the years with, you know, uh, Chinese experts and Russian experts sort of talking about each other. And of course, when the other's not in the room, they'll always talk to the Europeans, say, oh, well, you know, we, we wish we didn't have to work with these guys. They're a real pain in the backside. We'd rather be allied with you. And, you know, and, and in reality, I think they're probably playing a bit of a game and there's probably a bit of truth to it, but there's always been that kind of underlying tension between them. So I take all those briefings with a touch of a grain of salt, because I think at the end of the day, you know, I think in terms of how China's tried to strike the balance, it's, you know, it's complicated for them because I think on the one hand, they don't think, they, I don't think they think this is a fantastic idea. And again, I would say go back and look at history, right? And you can go back and look at when the Russians invaded Georgia in 2008 or when they first invaded Ukraine in 2014. You know, in both of those events, in 2008, they were actually fairly condemning, frankly, of what the Russians had done. Um, in 2014, they didn't really celebrate it. Uh, they didn't really say anything, really. They just kind of sat in the background and then later commented that, you know, they could kind of understand the reasons as to why Russia did what it did. And this time, they haven't actually celebrated the war per se. Uh, what they've done is basically advance a narrative which supports a bigger narrative they want to advance, which is, you know, the West is a sort of destabilizing force in the world and, you know, we are not. Um, you know, now in reality, of course, that's clearly untrue, manifestly untrue. And I think what we've seen happen over time is a kind of level of frustration and concern. And that's what I think partially we're seeing now in these comments that we keep seeing about, you know, uh, concerns about nuclear weapons and so on and so forth. Um, and so it's clear that the balance is, is still tipping along. But what I don't see in, and, and this, you know, probably bring us on to the next stage of the conversation, which I don't see is a desire by Beijing to try to rein Moscow in. You know, it's interesting to see how Ukraine's been reacting as Ukraine continues to seem to think that maybe, you know, uh, uh, the Chinese would come in and do something stabilizing. But I think the point from the Chinese perspective is it's a pretty zero sum victory if they try to rein the Russians in, because there is no evidence that the West is going to kind of let up on them if, you know, they do something to try to rein the Russians in. Um, rather, they think and they suspect, and probably correctly, that all it will do is free up more capability from the West to focus on them. So they're kind of in this awkward spot where on the one hand, they don't want the Russians to go too far. Uh, but on the other hand, they certainly don't want to be the ones to sort of pull them down because all it would do if they were to sort of pull the Russians down was God knows what it would mean for Russia itself, whether the regime would survive, whether you'd have some sort of state collapse or what Russia would look like afterwards. And then they would be seen as the one who's sort of principally responsible for that and have to sort of carry that can. But they'd also have lost a really important ally on the world stage. So they're in that kind of awkward spot where on the one hand, they don't want 
things to tip over too far. But on the other hand, they don't want things all to fall apart. And in a way, it's kind of that balance that you could, in a way, say you can see in North Korea, where on the one hand, you know, they don't want, you know, a bellicose nuclear North Korea, you know, launching nuclear weapons all over the place and causing a um, nuclear conflict on their borders. But at the same time, the alternative, which is essentially South Korea swallowing North Korea and American troops getting up to the border is also not very appealing. So they're kind of in this awkward stasis. And I think that's sort of where they want things to sort of stay for the time being until some sort of resolution presents itself. Well, I mean, so back in March, we always saw this you know, slew of comments. Uh, we had it from EU diplomats. I mean, I heard this from EU diplomats. We also saw, you know, publicly high ranking officials like Joseph uh, Burrell that, you know, saying things like China can play an important role as a mediator in the war, given its relationship with Moscow. You know, you, you spoke about the Ukrainians uh, making similar points. You know, Zelensky's brought this up at various points. And we've seen outreach from the Ukrainian foreign minister Kuleba to the same point. Um, and then, you know, obviously we had saw some more of this t- uh, recently out of the G20, most lately from Macron. Um, I mean, it seems like you, you, you've sort of answered this this question about whether China would actually want to bring Putin to the negotiating table. But maybe then the question to ask here is, I mean, you're talking about China's content or at least can live with this, this kind of awkward balancing act for the time being. But I mean, is there any chance to really break that, to, to lure the Chinese over to kind of, you know, what I think I remember someone in D.C., the, the way they used to dub it a few years ago was the reverse Kissinger. You know, this is the, the opposite of what happened when uh, when China was uh, or sorry, you know, the, the Sino-Soviet split. I mean, is there any kind of of likelihood or any kind of openings that would could lead to something like that? I mean, you know, I uh, am always an optimist and would like to hope that, you know, some sort of grand uh, resolution could be done and China would sweep in. But I'm not sure I see it because I think the calculus from Beijing's perspective uh, has to be that, you know, if we were to turn around uh, on this situation, you know, the consequences for Moscow could be very grave um, and it could undermine what is an important alliance. And in a way, I think the calculation from Beijing's perspective is, you know, would the United, would our relation with the United States change? And I think if they had a sense that that was going to transform in some way, then maybe I think they'd be willing to give. But at the end of the day, the Chinese kind of long-term perspective is we are locked into a conflict with the United States. And that is kind of the defining conflict of our time. And that's the important one we have to focus on. And that's the one which could, you know, start, could break the party or not, you know what I mean? And that's the important thing. And so anything that would potentially undermine that and, you know, losing Russia as a partner, um, you know, meaning that they're potentially, for example, the only one on the the permanent UNSC members, uh, you know, on some votes, you know, that that wouldn't be great. You know, they like the fact that they've got an ally that's important in that way is sort of backing them up. So, you know, there's a lot of risk in that side, but there's not necessarily the upside. The upside would have to be that, you know, the West would somehow give way on something. Um, and I'm not sure that the West necessarily would really. And I'm not sure that the Chinese think that they would. And so in, in a way, it's that bigger picture. I think that's going to cloud the ability of the, uh, of Beijing to really kind of step in and, and, and try to fix something uh, within this particular context. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not hugely optimistic about this reverse question. In yeah, some it ways, doesn't sound I, like it. Yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> the one thing I would say is, you know, in, in some ways I'd be more, 
I think there's more possibility that Moscow could flip, you know, and I think that's also a concern from Beijing's perspective, you know, because from their perspective, you know, they, they've always worried, you know, that maybe the Russians will go soft and sort of decide they want to be a European country instead of an Asian country. And then suddenly they're kind of again all by themselves and that's not where they want. So, you know, in some ways I think that, but I feel that possibility is more potent, there's more potential there in a way because, you know, it's maybe this whole situation is going to tear Moscow apart to the point where it will all fall apart and someone else will come in after Putin and who knows what that person will do. Maybe they will continue on or maybe they will change. I don't know. But I in a way see that as more likely than I do, frankly, the same, the change in the kind of relationship between the US and China. All right. So um, thanks, Rafael. That was very interesting. Um, I'm going to have to let's pause. I think this will be the break of our main part of our discussion. So soon we're going to open things up and we're going to start taking questions. But before we hop into that, we're going to play with a short segment that I call Expert Corner. This is where my guest, Raphael, will have a few uninterrupted minutes to deliver some added nuance and context to the topic at hand. So, Raphael, I'm curious to hear what you have to say. The floor is yours. Well, thank you, Reed, and uh, I'm honored to be the first one to try this out. So I, I wanted to talk a little bit about, about Central Asia, uh, which is a region that I'm you know, really interested in and, and do a lot of work on, as you know, and I think it's fascinating. And I think in a way it does, it, it, it's always a region that is described and talked about within the context of this China-Russia relationship. Um, and, you know, the narrative that we've seen coming out at the moment is this idea that, you know, as Russia you know, Russia is, is losing ground. We're seeing weaknesses come in. And that means China is going to kind of sweep in and fill the void. And it's a question I'm meaning a lot of work in thinking about. But I think what's interesting to me is actually what has really been the change in the impact. And the first thing to think about is what has actually been the impact of the war in Ukraine in Central Asia. And it's been a mix, frankly, of good and bad. I think some of the early prognostications uh, have not necessarily played out as negatively as was expected on the economic front. Things seem to be surprisingly more stable than they think. Think. Um, there has been this destabilizing or potentially worrying flood of Russians out, um, but there's been seen in a, in a both positive and negative light. On the one hand, you know, there's been some sense of maybe some of these people are people who may be able to contribute to the local economies, but I suspect they're all going to move on uh, pretty quickly, frankly speaking. Um, but it's it's clearly there, there's there's kind of a, a positive and a negative side to how the relationship has uh, has been playing out and how the region is, you know, on the one hand, finding it very difficult and worrying about what's happening. But on the other hand, noticing that a lot of Russian companies are leaving and trying to set up shop. A lot of Chinese companies are actually leaving Russia as well and trying to set up shop in Central Asia. So there's been a kind of positive influx at the same time as there's been this huge uh, concern and huge level of instability that's come in. And I think the question about whether there's a shift from China to Russia in the region and, you know, China's been able to take advantage of this to step in and kind of fill a void in much the same way as everyone talked in very grand terms about, you know, when, uh, you know, the United States left from Afghanistan, this created a vacuum which would suddenly allow uh, the Chinese to come sweeping in. The truth is it hasn't really played out like that. Um, and the truth is that while China has you know, continue to be a strong player. And we certainly saw uh, Xi Jinping, you know, have a very grand visit to Central Asia, uh, to Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan for the SEO summit and for bilateral engagements, where 
he was fated, uh, you know, met by President Tokayev off the plane in uh, in in Astana, um, met and shown around the city and given a big order of the eagles, an order of friendship of Kazakhstan, and then flown over to Samarkand, where he was greeted in a similar way by President Mirziyoyev and given an equally large medal and celebrated as a great ally of the region. And, you know, in Kazakhstan in particular, we saw how the region, how, how Kazakhstan talked uh, about the, the very positively about the statements that President Xi made about, you know, being eager to defend uh, their sovereign uh, sovereignty. Um, at the same time, you know, the truth is that the economic side is still very complicated. And in fact, the bigger destabilizing factor in some ways for the China regional relationship was COVID-19. And if you look, a lot of the trade relationships have still not picked up from where they were before. And you can see a lot of problems in terms of things going back and forth. Um, and COVID had a hugely negative impact on the economic relationship. And I think showed the region, in fact, how potentially China could be quite a fickle economic partner. And so that is hanging over the reality of the region now wanting to try to encourage and develop a stronger relationship with China. On the flip side of this, Russia still has very strong links into the region. Um, and I think it's always really, it's going to still retain a lot of those connections for some time. Um, clearly, I think they've been damaged. And at a public level, there's a very clear level of unhappiness. Um, you know, I think the sort of the more pro-Russian voices are, are, are smaller uh, and less visible. And certainly in my recent visits out to the region, I found a lot more negativity towards Russia than I'd found previously. Um, but at the same time, I'm not sure that's led to this sort of surge in China. And in some ways, the real question, I think, which is interesting to ask from this and the real lesson, I think, to think about going forwards is not so much is this, you know, this endless power play we think about in Central Asia between China and Russia, one surging, one not, or even other powers. Turkey is getting a lot of wind at the moment in the discussion. Um, the truth is, the real question is, will Central Asia be able to build on this to actually shape out its own future and continue to craft its own more autonomous vision of its foreign policy going forwards? Or will it continue to find itself being buffeted between these? And I think the questions in Central Asia are particularly acute because it sits between China and Russia. But I think a lot of these questions are ones that are just as relevant in lots of other parts of the world where both of these powers are quite important, like in the Caucasus, like even in parts of uh, uh, Central um, and Eastern Europe. And I'll, I'll maybe leave it there. Um, and I'll, I'll flip it back to you. The only last note I'd amusingly add on this is um, is the, uh, the 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 interesting curiosity of the China uh, Central Asia uh, Ukraine dimension to this entire thing is, of course, you know, the current ambassador uh, in Ukraine is the former ambassador in Dushanbe. <laughs> um, so he's a man who's well versed in the region. My understanding is he was as shocked as everybody else was of uh, the invasion uh, when it actually happened and was telling Chinese nationals right up to the last minute that they weren't, uh, there was nothing going to happen and to calm down and it would all be fine. So I think certainly the stories about President Xi not hearing, we don't think he heard, I don't think any of his system had really heard when this happened. So okay. that's well, going to be that's, a damage, but uh, I will stop there. Thanks, Raphael. That's super interesting. Um, always good to hear your, your, your thoughts on the region. Um, and it's also interesting to hear that anecdote. So um, to everyone who's listening right now, um, raise your hand. We want to hear from you. Raffaello and I are here to take your questions. Anything you want to know, Russia, China, their relationship with each other, um, how things are going to affect the, the war in Ukraine. We want to, you want to dig more into Central Asia. Raise your hand. Um, we'll be able to make you a speaker. We're curious to hear from you. Maybe while you guys are thinking of your questions, I'll get us, um, you know, a little bit started here. You know, Rafael, I mean, you mentioned before this idea of, um, you know, China perhaps actually being a bit more of a fickle economic player 
than I think maybe a lot of people are, are, are realizing, especially given that it's especially in Central Asia and a lot of the other parts of the former Soviet Union where it's always been, you know, a, a quote unquote enroaching into Russia's backyard. Um, but, you know, it's always been seen as this sort of rising economic force, this big tide, and that's really been its center of gravity. But, um, you know, we, we do kind of see, obviously, the Chinese economy is in a very different state than uh, it was, say, 10 years ago when the Belt and Road Initiative was launched. Um, you know, we know BRI, the, the amount of financing and funding available is, is getting cut back. And there's just like a lot more caution that's coming out of Beijing when it comes to lending money. So, you know, I'm really curious, you know, if we talk about, say, you know, China and Russia's relationship in a place like Central Asia, you know, what, how does that, how does that play in to there? I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts. And before you answer, I'm just going to say again, if you guys have a question, Raise your hand. Um, curious to hear what you want to know. So, uh, Raphael, I'm curious. Go for it. So, I mean, you know, this this dimension of China slowing down, uh, which you know has you know on um, on certainly on Belt and Road, that's been a narrative for a few years, really. Um, you know, it's it's. I think on the one hand, it's a bit overplayed <laughs> because I think part of the issue was always that there's an awful lot of froth around the Belt and Road and that was kind of pushed out in a you know in every direction you looked at the Belt and Road stuff and it was talked in these incredibly grandiloquent terms and whenever people talked about you know people to um to you know when you looked at any of the sort of big investments that would happen you dug into the numbers you discovered often it was a lot of repackaging a lot of different deals at the same time and at the same time i think there was a realization in beijing that they were kind of saddling themselves with an awful lot of uh, you know uncomfortable uh, debt in a lot of places where frankly there was very little prospect of them uh, ever actually paying it back and so what you've seen is a kind of a bit of a, a pullback and i think you know What's interesting of putting that into the uh, it's not so much a pullback as much of a kind of a, a realization or an admission of what's actually happening rather than what was, you know, probably never going to happen. What was always far too grand, what was, you know, far too complicated and frankly, countries where they just weren't going to be able to afford it. But I would say it is continuing on and it is continuing on in the Central Asian context as much as continuing on in lots of the sort of former uh, Soviet space. And even actually in Russia, you can still see China doing lots of big uh, sort of projects there. I mean, how this has played into the China-Russia relationship is everyone interpreted kind of Belt and Road in this space as kind of China continuing on this narrative of offering money um, while the Russians were seen as kind of the principal security actor. But, you know, to me, that was always a, a, a kind of ridiculous uh, <laughs> a separation because, you know, if we talk about just Central Asia, for example, the kind of driving reason of why uh, China is interested in particular in Central Asia is because it sees it as important uh, for the stability of Xinjiang. It's part of Central Asia. And China is very concerned about stability there. And they're doing a lot. And we've seen a lot in the kind of, you know, the camps and the closures and everything that's happening to the Uyghur community out in Xinjiang or the sort of clamp down on them. Um, but the kind of longer term vision from a Chinese perspective is ultimately an economic one, because they think that's what's really going to bring uh, stability to them uh, and to the region. And to make the region stable economically, you're going to have to connect it up to the world because it's as disconnected as the Central Asian region that it's next to. And so, you know, in some ways, the economic push that China's doing there actually has a security underpinning to it. And then if we flip that the other side and we go back to what we we're talking about before, the kind of lack of trust that really exists, I think, between uh, Beijing and Moscow. The question I always asked, you know, was why would the Chinese therefore think, you know, whatever investments are doing in this region, a region which unfortunately has had some instability uh, over the past year, um, you know, why would they just expect that 
they would rely on the Russians, this partner that they quite openly talk about as one that they don't totally rely on, to guarantee their security in that context. And so, in fact, if you look, the Chinese are doing quite a lot in the security space in the region as well, but it's very much more uh, limited in a way in what they're trying to do. And it's much more focused on, you know, protecting their specific assets or protecting links to their borders or dealing with groups that they're specifically worried about rather than, you know, offering some sort of security blanket for the region. So that's always kind of been uh, their priority. So I think that division was always a bit false. And I think what you're probably going to see going forwards is that divisions, you know, unreality or, or falsity um, you know, increasing getting shown up where we see China actually is probably going to continue to say, well, no, you know, we're really not reliant on the Russians for this and we're not going to come in and try to fix any problems in the region. Um, but at the same time, we're going to make sure our interests are, are guaranteed and protected. And I think that will probably become more obvious, I think, as we go forwards. Okay, folks. So if you have a question for myself or Raphael, you can raise your hand and we can turn you into a speaker and you can uh, take the floor or if you want to submit something in writing, you can DM either the main Radio Free Europe account, which is the host here, or myself. Um, Reed, so, I wonder if I could ask you a question. Sorry, please, actually, while, uh, while yes, I'm on this, because I'm reverse roles very briefly. You, know? uh, you are, you are, but you're an incredibly <laughs> knowledgeable guy, so I think we should hear from you as well, frankly speaking. And I, I wanted to ask you, you know, one that I, I genuinely don't know much about, I, I'd like to hear more about, which is Belarus which I think sits in an interesting space in this as well. You know, we hear a lot about, you know, so I, I look a lot at Central Asia and I'm very interested in that and I've banged on about it quite a bit already now. But, you know, I'm really interested in understanding Belarus because Belarus was a country which China always saw as kind of an important actor at the other end of the kind of Belt and Road across the Eurasian landmass. And a lot of big projects and investments happen there, and, you know, What's happened to all this, and what's the sense in 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 Minsk about you know how they see whether this you know push by Russia, this war by Russia, has you know destabilized what I think was a really potentially important economic relationship, you know, on the horizon for uh, the Belarusians. Yeah, I mean that, that that's a very good question. Um, you know, so I, I there's, a, there's a lot to unpack there. So I mean, the last time I was in. Belarus was the end of 2019. So this would have been a few months before the beginning of the pandemic. And I did a, a long report on this. Um, I was working for Foreign Policy Magazine at the time and um, spent uh, you know, a couple of weeks going around Minsk, looking at different Chinese investments, speaking to you know, officials and analysts and activists and you know, everyone that you do when you're putting together something like this. Um, you know, and at the time, it was kind of this very interesting moment, I think, to be there because there was still this tension that was going on uh, amid, uh, you know, Putin and Lukashenko. You know, Lukashenko was still being quite defiant, I think, of the Kremlin trying to find some wiggle room, um, especially because it seemed that Russia was leaning quite hard on Belarus, wanting to push, you know, reinvigorate this idea of a union state. And Lukashenko was quite desperate, you know, to keep any kind of his sovereignty and, you know, essentially his power, right? Um, and China was very much an, an interesting, you know, part of that balancing act. And we also saw the the Belarusians trying to reinvigorate ties with the Americans at that time. They reestablished diplomatic relations. And, you know, I think that the Chinese often really saw um, Belarus as this kind of interesting, you know, place on the EU's doorstep. You know, they were building up a lot of these, you know, economics, special economic zones. These They call them tech parks. Um, you know, setting up Chinese uh, companies, creating this new manufacturing hub, as well as, uh, you know, bases for trade uh, just on the doorstep of the EU, thinking that, OK, Belarus is sort of normalizing ties a bit. 
Um, it's quite close. It's well located. Um, it has good rail links, you know, moving back and forth between China and Central Asia and with Russia and everything like that. Um, and then, of course, you know, we have the big knock on effect of the pandemic hits, which obviously leads to um, a lot of investment drying up, um, all the supply chain stuff that, that everybody knows about. But then also, of course, in August 2020, we see then the protests that hit Belarus, which obviously leads Lukashenko to take a completely different, you know, a bit of a U-turn in terms of this, you know, multipolar foreign policy game he was playing, which is one moving very far away from the West as they were questioning him, um, leaning very heavily on Putin and the Kremlin. And I think getting to a point now where the war has begun that, um, you know, Lukashenko is kind of seen as an appendage of, uh, of Putin. And I think he's also relations with the West have really broken down. Uh, you know, they're not really functioning um, anywhere close. And so I think the Chinese by association have, obviously read the writing on the wall. And I think we're maybe a bit skeptical even before that in the lead up, just because some of these projects weren't, you know, exactly had runaway momentum or anything like that. Um, and so, yeah, I think that they're, they're looking elsewhere. And obviously this war has thrown a massive, you know, wrench, I think, in a lot of the Chinese plans for, for across Eastern Europe, um, you know, fallout in different ways, whether it's been, say, a place like Belarus, you know, coming so close to, to Russia, it's not even really an independent actor in foreign policy anymore. Or, you know, what we've seen in, in other parts of Eastern Europe, obviously, you know, Baltics, um, elsewhere along the edge, Poland, which has become a lot more perhaps hostile to the Chinese, uh, just because of its, you know, close relationship with Russia. So um, I think it's an interesting thing. And, and it's an interesting little episode of the of, of Belt and Road outreach that I think has left, um, you know, perhaps it's a bit of a cautionary tale and a reminder that, you know, the stuff doesn't always always work out. I mean, obviously, Belarus, I think, has a, a deep interest in in reviving these things. But I think the Chinese, um, you know, have, are moving on and looking around to perhaps other players who could fulfill that role, whether it's going to be, uh, you know, perhaps something like Serbia, I think, can maybe fill that gap a little bit. And I, and I actually just got back from Belgrade and that's something where I see... Um, Perhaps the Serbians looking to, to to lure in some more Chinese investment and try to do a similar thing, especially as they have this idea of you know EU Canada status is is on the on the chopping block for them, and so they think the Chinese very much like the idea of building up a relationship and having deep economic ties with a country that then could drift closer towards the the European Union and stabilize things. Then, um, so yeah, Raffaello, I think that that. Uh, I don't know. I hope that answers your question. Um, let me know. Uh, do you have any more? I think we're starting to get in a few questions now. Um, I'm getting Great. one in my inbox. So maybe I'll throw this one back towards you. So okay. this is from, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, uh, from Daniel uh, Arfire. Um, he said he's at work, but listening. So um, <laughs> he, he sent this like uh, Hi, Daniel. question to me. Hi, Daniel. Thanks for your question. So he says, um, can you ask Raffaello about where uh, Europe fits into this whole Russia equate Russia China equation? Um, I think especially he wants to know, um, you know, the EU market. I mean, I guess so. Is, is this can this lure people over? Is this, um, you know, where do you see the EU fitting between Beijing and Moscow as they drift closer and closer? Um, I mean, I think 
you know, uh, would I've certainly seen, I mean, I, I was in Brussels earlier in the year and you could see this kind of increasing hyphenation of China and Russia happening um, in the kind of discourse. Uh, and I think it's something you can see in the West as well in general. But I think a lot of the, the focus of, you know, the discussion often I find is really about the idea of, you know, well, how can we pry these two apart? You know, and that, that, that seems to be where everyone's embassy focus in sort of policy terms because I think, well, you know, if we turn one against the other, then we'll really be somewhere then. And I, I just, I don't think in the current context of the sort of global clash that we see, that really is, is very feasible. And I think the EU is guilty. I think what it has done is I think pre the invasion, you had seen a whole raft of European countries pushing out large Indo-Pacific strategies uh, and talking more about what they want to do in the Indo-Pacific, which is essentially code for, you know, China, um, you know, and how they were going to sort of deal with China and how they're going to confront China. And I think what I suspect you've seen happen is an awful lot of capitals, uh, some of that, you know, some of the capability and the thinking they were pushing in that direction has probably been redirected towards focusing on on Russia. Um, and, you know, I think that that's really that that's been the kind of biggest um, strategic impact in many ways. And, you know, the China Europe relationship remains as complicated as ever. And I think we've just seen, you know, Chancellor Schultz and President Macron meet with, you know, President Xi. Um, and in both cases, you know, they did the usual thing, you know, on the one hand, um, and even, you know, British Prime Minister Sunak recognizes in the UN, it's still European, uh, you know, I, I think he was meant to have a meeting, but then it got cancelled, uh, you know, but they clearly push out the talking points from it. And the talking points were very clear that, you know, it's the same narrative that you can see coming out from other places, which is, you know, they need a relationship with China on the one hand because of the big global issues that they all we're all confronting together. But on the other hand, they disapprove and, you know, say harsh words about Xinjiang, about Hong Kong, about Taiwan. Um and that delicate balance is the sort of constant problem going forwards and the economic aspect and the importance of the EU's economic relationship with China is, is, is really, you know, an overriding issue that seems to strike this balance. And I think that reality hasn't gone away. But now the Europeans have got this war on their doorstep, uh, which is clearly going to draw much more attention. So I think the biggest impact of it's going to be, you know, it's, it's just frankly drawing more attention away. And I think a lot of European capitals are really focusing really heavily on, for very good reasons, on, on Ukraine and on Russia. And, you know, China is something they're still very focused on and still very worried about. But at the same time, I just feel like the energy is clearly going more in a, in a sort of Russian direction at the moment. So, you know, it's, it, you know, the Europeans have a, have a kind of complicated <laughs> approach to the world, um, you know, in part because of the sort of structures they have internally. And even within it, you don't, of course, have consensus on either Russia or China in some ways. Um, but at the moment, you kind of do, actually. Um, but there are always individual actors who sort of have uh, issues with one or the other. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's not, I think the biggest takeaway for me uh, has been that they're really, you know, the, the kind of big Indo-Pacific push we saw before, I get a sense it's not stalled or not stopped. It's still continuing forwards. But, you know, I think in, in capitals and in security institutions, they're really focused on the war. All right. Thanks, Raffaello. Uh, Kubat, um, I believe you had a question. So let's uh, unmute yourself and curious to hear what you have to ask. Thank you very much, Reid. Uh, thank you, Rafaela, for this insightful interview. My question is related to the Central Asian region. It's clear that Beijing's role is in Central Asia is growing uh, as Russia continues uh, to wage its unprovoked war in Ukraine. And do you think there's any room for Turkey's growing ambition in Central Asia in this geopolitical 
shifts amid the war in Ukraine. Thank you. Uh, Raf, do you want to take that one? I'm curious what you have to say. Sure. I mean, look, I think it's... We, I, I've been, uh, you know, I, I published a book earlier this year, so I've been doing a, a various events, and the Turkey question has come up quite a lot in many of them. And I, you know, I think it's, you know, we have the Turkic summit just happened. And so clearly that's really crystallized people's focus and attention. But it does seem on the ground there is also evidence of kind of Turkey showing up or, or being more present. But what's always struck me about Turkey's relationship with the region is, with Central Asia in particular, is that, um, and actually this sort of wider region as well, because you can see Turkey's playing a role in, in Ukraine as well, is I think we are seeing Turkey trying to step into a role. But, you know, it's something that, in the Central Asian context, at least, we've seen happen in the past. Um, and people always talk about it because there is this kind of cultural proximity. But then I haven't ever really seen it materialize in a really substantial way, in a sort of transformative way on the ground. And I'm, I have yet to be convinced whether the particular push we're seeing now is going to result in that as well. I think China, you know, Turkey just offers something very different uh, to you know, what Russia already has with the region or what China could potentially offer to you know, Central Asia or, in fact, the sort of wider world. It's, it's just a very different player. And I think in some ways the question that the Turks have to wonder a little bit about is you know, the approach that they sometimes are perceived to be taking, which is very driven by the kind of cultural proximity they have. I'm not sure that's always, you know, totally welcomed. You know, I think there is a degree to which, you know, the narrative, if you follow that through to its conclusion, is that basically Turkey is the big brother for the region. Well, you know, these are countries that are new to the world. You know, they're only they're 30 years young, um, you know, and they shared one uh, big brother in Moscow. <laughs> and I'm not sure they want another one in Ankara, you know. So I think that that's a balance that I think Turkey has to strike. You know, I think they've got some very interesting links and some very interesting options. But I think were they to take this kind of dominant player role in the region, I'm not entirely sure it would necessarily go down, you know, would necessarily be entirely welcomed in the region in the same way. I think the region would like Turkey to be a positive contributor, and I think Turkey does contribute something clearly, but I don't think it can compete with the others. Um, and at the same time, I think that there's probably a, a threshold uh, for the region's desire to sort of be seen as, you know, Turkey's uh, little brothers. Thank um, you. Kuba, does that answer your question, or do you, do you want to add something else? Thank you, yes. It's more than clear. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Kuba. Appreciate it. Um, okay, so I have one here in my inbox. Um, this is from Yasiru. Um, and it's a question, where does India fit into all this? And is there any impact on Russia and China's relationship, um, especially following the war from New Delhi? Um, I mean, I think that's always kind of an interesting relationship, don't you think so, Rafael? I mean, obviously, Moscow and New Delhi have a quite storied relationship going back to Soviet times. We've seen India um you know be there to buy russian goods around all of that um but i mean do you see india playing any kind of other role amid this or, or perhaps coming in between russia and china in any kind of way um it's interesting i mean i think india is always a interesting foreign policy player because you know it, it does really strike its own path you know and it's uh, uh it's you know on the one hand it 
has clearly been forging a very close relationship with Washington, driven very much by its concerns with China and Washington's concerns with China, really. But at the same time, it's refused to kind of jettison its relationship with Russia and Moscow, which it still sees a very important partner. And at the same time, it hasn't jettisoned its relationship with China. You know, while we, you know, a lot of the attention is about how negative the India-China relationship is, the truth is all three of these countries are members of BRICS and all three of these countries are members of the Shanghai Corporation Organization. And they participate at the appropriate level at all of these sessions uh, uh, continually, even you know, through the clashes that we've seen between China and India, um, even through the kind of war in Ukraine. And I think, you know, from Moscow's perspective, they're in, diplomatically speaking, not a bad spot when they've got, you know, the two, the world's two most populous countries uh, seemingly willing to at least not, you know, op- too aggressively condemn them on the world stage. So, you know, I think it's certainly true. Um, I think the Indians see the Russians in a funny way, probably as part of a potential bulwark against China. Um, But, you know, I think the Russians have frankly played a very canny game with both. I mean, they've sold the same missile systems to both countries (laughs) over the years, you know, which I guess negates each other, right? But, um, you know, so it's a very tricky kind of balance. But I think fundamentally, what probably is a sort of uh, determinant between them all is really the relationship with the West. You know, that's the kind of element where you can see a kind of distinction and a difference. But at the same time, even India, the sort of great Asian democracy that, you know, Western policymakers often talk about as a sort of bulwark against, you know, the sort of anti-democratic China um, in Asia, you know, in reality, there, there are plenty of issues within India at home. Uh, but, you know, more generally, the Indians have made it very clear that they don't want to actually get locked into kind of one side or the other. And they're quite they recognize that, you know, China is a reality that sits next to them and they do have to have some sort of a relationship. And, you know, you can see them, the border problems are, are very problematic. And I think since the clashes where we saw so many people killed, we have seen a real uh, problem there, but we haven't seen a complete sort of collapse in the relationship. And I think that speaks to India's attempt to really steer through the middle, um, which I think is a contrast to China and Russia, where it's very clear that they see principal adversary of the West um, and, you know, work everything else from there. All right. Um, Unfortunately, we're running low on time, so we're going to have to end it there. Um, Once again, this has been Talking China Eurasia, a new podcast from Radio for Europe. Um, A very big thanks to my guest, Raffaello Pantucci, for his time and insights. And thanks to all of you who tuned in and had questions for us today. As I mentioned at the start, this is a live conversation, um, but it will also be published as a podcast um, and available on Radio Free Europe's website. You can also subscribe to Talking to China or Talking China in Eurasia and other Radio Free Europe podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you like to listen. Uh, I'll be back in two weeks' time on Wednesday, November 30th, with another edition of Talking China in Eurasia. And if you don't already, please subscribe to my China in Eurasia newsletter, which comes out every other Wednesday. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I'm Reed Standish.